Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, what is the metaverse really? Almost everyone has heard of the metaverse and seen that word in the splashy headline. But what is it really, and what could it become in the future? In some sense, the answer is simple and very broad. It's just another place, another opportunity, another environment for consumers to engage in, to play, to socialize, to learn, to be trained on. It's for companies to be able to provide an environment for employees to interact in a workspace. It's another environment for advertisers to be able to promote their products and services. But the metaverse today is a new wild west where potential for innovation is matched by potential risk. If somebody creates something, it's copyrightable. If someone steals it, it's a problem. And then the question becomes enforcement. Jerome Walker, Flora Lau, and Terry Dugan from the City Bar Digital Technology Task Force dive into the innovations and the risks that are emerging today. And they ask, with creators and companies galloping into the new frontier, where are they going and who will be in charge? The real historical economic kind of questions facing us is who is going to have the kind of clout within the industry to push for cross-platform compatibility and a real transition to Web 3.0. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Jerome Walker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast hosted by the City Bar Task Force on Digital Technologies. My name is Jerome Walker, and I will moderate this podcast. I am a co-chair of the task force, and I'm very pleased to introduce two members of the task force who will serve as panelists today. Flora Lau is a co-chair of the task force subcommittee on the metaverse, a member of the City Bar Entertainment Law Committee, and the Associate General Counsel at Influential. Terry Dugan is a co-chair of the task force subcommittee on the metaverse, chair of the City Bar Entertainment Law Committee and a partner at O'Melvy and Myers. Today's topic will focus on the metaverse. Flora, exactly what is the metaverse? Why was it created? And what is the metaverse experience like? Thank you, Jerome. Before I start to unpack the definition, first, I want to thank you for making the time to moderate this session for us. We really appreciate it. I'm really excited to be part of this particular podcast. I have to uh, make sure it's clear to the listeners that I am by no means an expert on the metaverse. My experience with the metaverse has to do with my work as an advertising attorney. So I'll be speaking from the perspective as an advertising attorney. Now, I did do some homework. I did a lot of research and I decided on Sunday night that I would randomly select a family at a restaurant just to ask them, what is the metaverse? And the responses that I got was very different from each person. So one person said, the metaverse is the digital world. Another person said, the metaverse is Facebook redefined. A third person said, I don't know what the metaverse is. And then the last response was, the metaverse is VR. And as we're reflecting on these responses, I have to say that the metaverse, as I understand it, is made up of these various components. The metaverse is involving 
technology. You need technology in order for there to be a metaverse experience. It does involve a platform. You do need a place or places in order to be able to experience the metaverse in the uh, virtual, what we call the virtual world of worlds. In fact, the idea of a virtual world was first introduced in a sci-fi novel back in 1992, where they talked about a virtual place. And the person that said, I don't know, sometimes I sort of think I'm not quite sure yet because the metaverse experience, the metaverse definition is evolving based on how the technology is evolving. I believe you also wanted to know not only is what do we mean by the metaverse, but why was it created? And I sort of think about why does it even exist or does it even exist? And I would say it's just another place, another opportunity, another environment for consumers to engage in, to play, to socialize, to learn, to be trained on. It's for companies to be able to uh, provide an environment for uh, employees to interact in a workspace. It's another environment for advertisers to be able to promote their products and services. And I think it's fair to say that the metaverse as we have it now sort of grew organically. I mean, in the early days of the internet, you had chat rooms, nothing was, there was no video, it was all text. And, and people just wanted to form these communities. And, and they're very analogous to, to social media platforms, except people are now able to create their own little realities and create their own, own groups that interact socially online. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting the way you guys think about the, the metaverse. So as a layman like me, and perhaps some of the audience that's listening to this, who are some of the leading companies in the metaverse? Why should lawyers, for example, even care about the metaverse? And what's the state of the metaverse? I mean, the, the old guard company is Second Life. It's been around, I think, since the early 2000s, maybe. But there are many more. I mean, the latest sort of big splash entrance was when a company formerly known as Facebook rebranded itself as Meta. And they have their own version of the metaverse which is called Meta Horizons. And, but there are many others. And some of them are sort of blockchain based and distributed. And Flora can talk some, something about those. Others are like sort of just gaming platforms. You got Roblox, to some extent, like a pure gaming platform, like Worlds of Warcraft is like a metaverse. So there's just a wide range of players at this point. And to add to that, as I've described early on when trying to define the metaverse, you need to have a platform, you need to have the infrastructure. So you have some big technology companies currently in what we call the Web2 space that have the infrastructure built to enable the metaverse experience. So as Terry have mentioned, you have Facebook who have rebranded themselves as Meta, you have Microsoft, you have Google. These are major big tech companies that have the technology, the hardware, and their software to enable the metaverse experience. You also have in the gaming space companies like Roblox, and you have new players like Sandbox and Decentraland. Decentraland in particular, one would say they can truly experience the metaverse that have enabled and built out the metaverse experience. So these are just examples of some companies that have decided to introduce and make available 
the experience of the metaverse. In some of my uh, prior discussions with the two of you, it became clear to me that in order for me to start to understand the metaverse, that there, there's almost like a new voca vocabulary and new concepts. For example, Flora, you just mentioned Decentraland. And I remember you were mentioning Roblox. I remember also you and Terry mentioning a walled garden of the tuber. Could you explain some of this new vocabulary and some of these concepts in a way that lay people like me can understand it? Yeah, let, let me address the walled garden thing first, because I think that's an important distinction to make. The sort of surest definition of the metaverse and a practical definition, the real world definition of the metaverse, uh, no pun intended. If you go back to the old sci-fi origination of this and where people want this to go in the future, the meta in metaverse means you can move things across platforms. So the idea would be you could buy a like a customized car NFT in a gaming platform and then use that in Facebook's metaverse. And so the idea would have cross-platform portability. And people are talking about that now in the context of, of Web 3.0, but we're not there yet. So what we have now, I mean, there's a little bit of interoperability, but mostly what we have now are walled gardens. So each platform is its own platform. You have blocks, you have uh, the central land, you have second life and a particular avatar or particular account doesn't cross between from one to the other. So that's what we mean by a walled garden. And that has a lot of economic implications too, because it's a lot easier to monetize a walled garden. Uh, but, um, Laura, do you want to add to that? Yes. Great introduction. Thank you, Terry, to describe uh, the understanding of, of, of a walled garden and the fact that really in the future, what we are hoping for is a metaverse where it's multiple places that you're able to go from place to place and experience the metaverse. The example of the walled garden of, say, a meta, when you're a member interacting in meta, you're only able to transact within that environment and you're not able to bring forth anything you might have created. Say you create an avatar that look, looks like you or looks nothing like you. And you love your avatar, but you can't move your avatar from meta to Decentraland. You can't move your avatar from Decentraland to Roblox. And so for you, you're like, well, that's your metaverse identity, but you're not able to fully utilize it and fully play with it in all the different environments. And the specifics about each of these spaces that you can go into, I can give you a specific example from my experience as an advertising attorney and running an ad campaign for a client that wanted to interact, transact within Decentraland. So Decentraland is a space on the internet that allows you to purchase virtual land using crypto, which is not real currency, to use the land to build so in this example of the ad campaign, the client wanted to build a bar to introduce a new beverage. And the purpose really was to introduce the beverage to consumers and also to give them an experience, to give the consumers an experience of interacting within the metaverse. So, so the central land is a great place if you want to build brand awareness if you want to promote your products and services to consumers, if you want consumers to shop 
within your metaverse because in the metaverse, you can actually build a virtual shopping experience for the consumer. You had also asked about Roblox. Roblox is really well known for their online gaming. My nephew, since age six, and we can talk about age allowance based on the legal requirements, but I know that he'd always been very active from Roblox because you're able to create your own, what they call assets, weapons or shields. You can create your own games. It's great for the creators, what we call the people that like to build for the creator economy. So there's a lot of resources within Roblox that provide it to what we call creators to build new games, to build a new community, to be able to even, you can even tap into talent. If you're looking for software developers, you can go into Roblox and look for software developers. Would you guys please explain, um, th th there's a lot of economic activity. So could you please explain what the economic drivers of the metaverse and the virtual worlds are? Well, there's sort of two sides of it. You know, one is, as Laura mentioned, there's a creator economy. People can go into the central land and create objects and sell them. Yeah. Just to give you a sense of the economic scale, the last number I saw for Second Life is that the creators are pulling out something like $80 million a year. It's real economics. There are people that, that sort of make sort of a modest little living doing this stuff because it takes a lot of programming and scripting and, and, and artwork to create some of these objects because people create pre-made avatars, people create houses, people create weapons all kinds of stuff, anything you can think of. And so there's the, the creator side of the economy. And then there's also the landlord side of the economy, not just in the central land, but in many of these platforms, you can buy land and rent it out to other people. So there are people who generate revenue as landlords. They'll buy the land or they'll rent it from the platform owner and, and subdivide it and sell it off to other people. But then the whole other side of it is the sort of the advertising branding piece, which Laura knows more about than I do. One way to think about it is it's another opportunity, another place to be able to, say, for an advertiser to promote their products and services. It's another place for people to get together and socialize. It's another place for a way of collaborating. Uh, it's also very efficient if you think about the virtual space, because say you have to attend three meetings in one day, but they're located in different cities. You can tap into the metaverse to be able to have a meeting in London on the same day that you're having a meeting in Singapore. So it can be a very efficient place. So the economic driver as to why people would be interested in leveraging the metaverse experience and the metaverse technology has to do with what I've identified, the importance of finding another place to be able to, to what I say, to play, to socialize, to train, to collaborate, to do work. Interestingly, during the uh, preparation for this podcast, the two of you spent a lot of time identifying legal issues. And that's critically important for many of the lawyers who are listening to this. It's beyond the scope of my understanding, but you guys have a good handle on it. 
Flora, I remember you talking about issues for influencers. What are the issues, the legal issues for influencers? Yes, the advertisers definitely have an interest in promoting their products and services within the metaverse because it's just another environment for them to reach a subset or a certain number of type of consumers. And so one way they'll do this is by utilizing what we call influencers. These are people that have developed a number of followers who are interested in their influencers' content. And so when these influencers decide that they're going to promote a product and service in the metaverse for the advertiser, it is important that the influence understand that the same advertising laws and regulations apply to these influencers in the metaverse. So an example would be the FTC Act. The importance of making sure that you're clear with the consumer that you're advertising the product on behalf of a brand, on behalf of an advertiser. All of the same rules that you would expect in terms of making sure you're clear about the product itself, what you're claiming about the product can be substantiated when you're describing it within the metaverse. So those same rules do apply. The influencer may also decide to go into the metaverse, not just because they're looking to promote a product or service, but just because they want to also play in the metaverse and they want to develop their following in the metaverse. And so as an influencer who is not representing a particular advertiser or brand, they still need to make sure that as an influencer, depending on what it is that the content that they're promoting, that they have done what they need to do to ensure that the images or the information that they're using as an influencer has been fully cleared from a legal perspective. So they still have a lot of requirements that they have to follow that would be the same that they would have to follow currently in the real space versus the virtual space. No, interesting. Terry, you mentioned that there are also trademark and IP issues. What are some of those issues? I think the trademark issues, I've seen less of that on the platforms I've been on. But one way to think about all of this is that they're really the same issues you would have in the real world. So if a creator were to use someone else's trademark, the actual owner of the real world trademark may want to come in and stop that or, or protect it in some way. The other issue is copyright, because just like in, in the real world, if you create a unique environment, and you need to understand some of these environments that people build are incredibly elaborate. I mean, I, I remember seeing a very accurate sort of depiction of Frank Lloyd Wright's falling waterhouse in Second Life. There's a, there's a very elaborate build that looks like Mont Saint-Michel in the Crans. So somebody builds something unique like that. There are software tools that people can use to scrape that and basically steal it, even though the, the ordinary user may not have access to it. If somebody creates something, it's copyrightable. If someone steals it, it's a problem. And then the question becomes enforcement. And, and one issue that I've been watching for a long time, and I've not really seen an action, is how the Digital Millennium Copyright Act applies in these virtual worlds. Because just if somebody uh, steals your song and, and puts it on YouTube under the DMCA, you should have a, an ability to notify the platform of that, have them take down the infringing content. I've not seen that in any of the metaverse platforms. It may be out there and I just haven't seen it, but it seems to me the same DMCA rules should apply here. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Flora, you earlier talked about avatars. Are there legal issues related to avatars? Legal issues related to avatars. So let me step back for a second and describe what is an avatar. In order to enter into the metaverse where we are describing a digital world where we are using the current technology of VR technology, what we need to do as the human being, we need to create an avatar in order to interact in the metaverse. So we create our avatar, which is a uh, version of ourselves or it's representing us, but may not necessarily look like us. It could even be an animal that I choose to be my avatar. And then the avatar enters into the metaverse and I believe you want to understand if there were some legal issues involved in utilizing that avatar. I think one issue could be that my understanding is that it is possible that the people that are interacting with you with the avatar don't necessarily know who you are. And the issue could be that if you as an avatar end up harassing or stalking or you're a bad actor, quote unquote, avatar, it may be hard to identify who you really are and be able to ex enforce the issues that are presented by that avatar. Who do you go to? Who do you figure out who that person is, who that person is behind that avatar? So that's one issue that I could think of right now as it relates to the avatars. Yeah. And, and you could also obviously have the name image like, like in French, but if somebody creates an avatar that looks like a real public figure. But yeah, the, yeah, the platforms put a lot of energy into policing bad actors. Most of them have some kind of complaint process and things can lead to IP level bans. How well those work, because the problem is that if you're a bad actor, the platform kicks your, your current account off. You can just open a new account. I think some, some platforms will go so far as to try to do an IP ban. Of course, that's not perfect. But there is an enforcement mechanism there for bad actors. Yeah. Flora earlier was talking about a, a, a minor. One of her, her relatives is a, a minor. And so how does that work in terms of the legal issues related to mine who are uh, in the metaverse? Yeah, I, I think it's a big problem. They all struggle with it. For example, in Roblox, I mean, they've historically had a problem because any social media platform, it's really the same issue, right? You can have someone posing as a minor to try to lure other minors. There, there's a fair amount of virtual sex in some of these platforms, and you, you have people pulling minors into that sort of activity. And the platforms shut those down as soon as they find out about them. But obviously, it's not perfect. It's a little bit of a whack-a-mole process. Just to give you one example, in Second Life, sort of particular sims or, or, or virtual plots of land have different ratings. You can have an adult rating, a mature rating, or a rated G. And, and on the adult-rated um, plots of land, uh, avatars that, that aren't too short so that they could be children are not allowed. So there, there are you know, people are trying to do what they can for enforcement, but just like the social media platforms struggle with it, it's, it's just not a perfect process. Yes. So the intent, if we think about society culturally, we want to find mechanisms to protect the young from inappropriate content. We want to make sure that they're safe. 
And so there are age restrictions placed by these social media platforms, by these technology service providers to, and, and also through our laws, to try to ensure that these minors are protected. However, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be able to uh, prevent a, what we define as the minor from accessing these particular platforms or technology. And so there still needs to be, of course, parenting to help with ensuring that if the particular platform or technology is being utilized, that there is a parent helping to monitor the uh, experience. How do you deal with the concept of ownership in the metaphors? You guys have talked about land, you've talked about products and services, you've talked about these avatars and the, these games. So how do you determine who owns what in the, in the metaverse? Who owns the content of the metaverse? How are those issues addressed? As it's been, been described right now in the Web2 interface, the ownership of the metaverse, which is a place or places, a virtual place or places, is the company that has actually built that infrastructure. And so they will define within their terms and conditions, if they built the infrastructure, they own the infrastructure. So if Facebook built Meta, they own Meta. And so if you want to interact within Meta, you need to abide by their rules. And their rules will identify if you create content within their infrastructure, their rules will say, Either they own the content or you own the content. And if you own the content, then you will license back the rights to use that content in a certain way. Now, as we look into the future of the internet, there are those that are describing what they call Web3, the Web3 infrastructure, which allows for more what they're calling decentralization, where you have the ability to form partnerships where there will be multiple owners of the infrastructure that you're building. And if you have multiple owners, such as what Terry had described as the creator economy, so you have multiple creators that created that environment of the metaverse, they can then define who owns the assets or content that's created. And most times the creator is going to want to be able to fully own the content assets that are created so that they can then use it within many different virtual place or places in the metaverse. And, and there are a couple of senses in which the word ownership can be used here. I mean, if, if you, with these platforms, the terms of service that everybody signs up for is basically the constitution of the particular walled garden. And so that may well say that the owner of the platform owns everything, can shut everything down. But in order to have the economies work within these platforms, you have to have a sort of virtual ownership con concept. And that's really dealt with technologically because what happens if some a creator creates an object, a virtual car, a weapon, whatever, he can set the parameters of that object so that whoever he gives it to can't transfer it to somebody else, can't, can or can't copy it. And so there people make a full permission objects that they give to people who are other creators who are going to incorporate that in something else. And so that's almost like a, an open source software, but the way that the creators get, protect their economics 
position within the metaverse is by limiting copyability and transferability of the objects they're selling. Given the commercial activity that occurs within the metaverse, are there product liability issues in the metaverse? I, I've not seen that in terms of objects within the metaverse. I mean, Floyd, you could type up if, if you have. I think that the, the tort issue that people worry about is with the VR headsets, because you're using this in your house, typically, and you may be standing up, but they all will have kind of a protective perimeter so that you don't take up the wrong step and trip over your coffee table. And I, I've heard some concerns that hackers can disable that or modify it. So I, I've not heard of any cases yet about that. But beyond that, I mean, Florida, have you seen any kind of really internal kind of product liability issues within platforms? I have not, but as I was listening to you describe the VR headset, the product liability that comes to mind, it's really about the consumer use of that VR headset. And it's such an intensive experience. And I do wonder if there could be claims that would be coming in from the consumer in terms of the mental and physical toe and negative um, feelings that headset could produce for that particular individual. And so it's the product itself that's causing the issues or the product itself could be damaged in some way that could impact the consumer. So that's where I kind of think about as I'm listening to you about the potential product liability issues. You do see people sell content or objects within platforms that don't work as advertised. And, and, and I've not seen any real remedy for that. I mean, I think it's just the, the reputational issue of the people who are selling a lot of this stuff, want to fix it or make sure it works. If the product doesn't work as advertising within the metaverse, then the same advertising laws would apply because the product that's being promoted and sold and claims that are being made about the product needs to be true, needs to be accurate, and needs to perform as claimed. And so I would see where a consumer does have a right in the real world to claim that what they learned about and was sold to them in the virtual world was false, was not working as expected, and now they should be able to enforce their rights in the real world with the real court. Back to what you said before, the problem with that is that you, you'll never find the creator in the real world to sue it. So there's really not a lot of practical remedies for those kinds of things. And I think, like I said, I think what really protects people, it's a bit of a wild west when it comes to selling products. And so I think people's reputation with sellers or, or people do ratings. There's sort of marketplaces where people rate these products. And if you get a lot of low ratings, you won't sell much. Yes, true, Terry. So what Terry's identifying is where there isn't an identifiable creator. When, where I was coming from was it's a truly identifiable advertiser. So it could be Nike who's selling their sneakers in the metaverse. We know who Nike is and we know where to find the people. But if someone that no one really knows and they built this great sneaker, then if we can't identify who they are, then it's hard for us to pursue them um, for something that they sell to us. That was a fake. <laughs> yeah. You guys have used two words that I struggle with in the context of the metaverse. You've used the word stalking and griefing. What does that mean in the context of the metaverse? As we said before, they're bad actors, just like on a social media platform. You're just like any internet troll who just wants to harass people. You see this inside metaverse platforms and you have people who will intentionally, like people gather 
lots of different ways people operate within these platforms. People will attend a performance, right? But a lot of it is social interaction and, and role play. We have, you have people that want to reenact a medieval court or actually even people that, that do fishing, uh, actual with rods and reels inside the metaverse, which I've never understood, but it's really popular. And people are called reefers are people who come in and intentionally disrupt these interactions. And again, the, the people who control the, the virtual land here will either themselves or will have appointed administrators that can eject those people or ban them. So there is an enforcement process there, but some people are very tenacious. And if they get banned, they'll create a new account, a new avatar and come back again. And if they're obsessed with a particular person, they will just come after that person. And I've seen people be driven off these platforms because of that. Almost all commercial activity has, um, some bad actors. I'm a compliance guy with a focus on money laundering and terrorist finance and the prevention of, of those and other financial crimes. Is the metaverse also subject to bad actors who might be engaging in financial crime, like money laundering and terrorist financing and the like? Yeah, well, look, I mean, you, you, most of these platforms have a virtual currency of some kind. Sometimes it's a cryptocurrency. You like the central land, but in other cases, it's a purely kind of virtual account currency inside the platform. And in order for creators to get their cash out, that can typically be converted into dollars and people put dollars in to buy objects, to pay for advertising, whatever, to pay performers. And so there, there is an exchange between the virtual currency and real world currency. And that is something I believe, I really have never tried to track it down, but there was a change maybe 10 years ago in the way these currencies were managed by the platforms where they're using third-party exchange companies that I believe are compliant with the FinCEN anti-money laundering rules to sort of regulate this. They're, they're, most of them aren't really doing it completely on their own now, or unless they're big enough to have their own compliance process. Yeah, that's interesting because it seems that you're suggesting that within the platform, if within the platform you're engaging in the type of activity that FinCEN or OFAC would regulate, then that means whoever these platform owners are, they would need to have some form of a program that prevents yeah. that illicit activity. Am I understanding that correctly? I think that's right. I, th I think they have a compliance process. Yeah. Are there tax issues in the metaverse? Well, there have been some articles written about whether virtual profits are taxable. There have been some proposals. So there's a lot of sort of talk about it. And, and presumably, if I'm a creator and I create something and get cash out, that's going to be taxable income. But so far, I don't think the proposals to actually tax the internal economic activity within the metaverse platforms has gone very far, but it is something that tax policy people are thinking about. We talked a minute ago about pulling cash out and putting cash in, but what can happen is that performer performs, gets paid and uses that virtual currency by something else inside the platform and it never comes outside. And I think that the tax policymakers, as tax policymakers do have their eye on whether that should be a taxable event. Yes. Last time I looked into it, IRS did consider crypto transactions to be taxable. As I was listening to both of you describe the 
potential money laundering that could occur and whether or not it would be the platforms itself that would be governed by the applicable laws. We also have to keep in mind that we're still thinking in the Web2 world. So if you're in the Web3 world and you're using Web3 technology, there may be infrastructure that's developed that you can't quite identify all the players who should be responsible for following proper governings around the transaction of those dollars. And I do know, having worked my prior companies involving the transaction of crypto, there was a huge concern about the potential of there being money laundering within the metaverse technology. Yeah. Interestingly, as you're thinking about it, because we're talking about commercial activity, it seems that commercial activity within the metaverse raises a lot of the same issues as commercial activity outside of the metaverse. Is that true with the securities law issues as well within the metaverse? I think it's possible. I mean, the platforms I'm on, I've not really seen any sort of investment activity, but in, in some of the other platforms, I think in, in like Sandbox or Decentraland, there was a real land rush with people paying a lot of money for virtual lands. And I could see a real potential for both like pyramid schemes and also just classic Howey test securities within that context where you basically have somebody saying, give me money and I'm going to operate this business within, whether it's a, a landlord business or some other kind of business within, within a metaverse platform. And it looks like a classical security. It could look like a classical security. I'm not aware of any enforcement activity or any claims, because I think a lot of the people that play in this space would recognize that they're just putting their money at risk. But analytically, I don't see why it's not possible. Yes, I see it as a definite possibility because you go in the metaverse and you, example, where you're, as Terry said, you purchase the land, you build a building, and then you ask people to invest, to ask them to invest in the building. And there is an investment activity and you have like real people looking to invest in this virtual building. I would think the security laws would be triggered. Yeah. And in, in that respect, you'd have some of the disclosure issues, presumably, that you would have for investors that would exist outside of, of the metaverse. You guys have talked and you've gone between kind of Web 2 and Web 3. In the context of Web 3, are there DAO issues that is decentralized autonomous organizations with, within, within the, the metaverse, dark patterns and accessibility issues? I'm going to let Terry to speak to the DAO, but I would say in terms of dark patterns, there's been a lot of activity right now by the regulators such as the FTC, where they have said, you need to make sure that you're really clear about what you're selling to your consumer. And if, you, if you're doing anything, any kind of activity where you're really like misleading the consumer so that they can purchase that product, then you need to stop it now. So like you may be on, on an airline website and you're looking to purchase your airline tickets to fly to Tokyo and you're ready to pay the $200 and then you get a pop-up that says, oh, if you want to ensure that you get there within a few hours, you want to pay another $300. And it continues to keep asking you kinds of questions that are misleading you to thinking that you need to buy and pay for additional things as part of your airline ticket. So that's the dark pattern. I could see where dark patterns could also occur in the metaverse. And then in terms of accessibility, my thinking around that is, is that 
it is important when I say accessibility that we make sure that if the metaverse is in fact the future of the internet, that it is accessible to all consumers of all kinds, of all demographics. And so some will say some of the issues, and one of our uh, committees is about the digital divide, right? Some of the issues is that not all consumers have access to the technology that's needed in order to experience the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, on the distributed autonomous organization point, I mean, that, that, you know, that not by any means an expert in that, but the law, as I have followed it, is still evolving. The people that created these DAOs sort of had hopes that they would effectively insulate the sponsors, the creators of them from any liability. I think there's some cases out there now that are saying that may not be the case. So I think, I think as we move to, to web 3.0, the, the, that, that law is going to continue to evolve. And I think we'll eventually arrive at kind of a judicial consensus on whether you can pierce a DAO or not. I think with DAOs and also with NFTs, there are a lot of securities laws issues as well, because we've had clients approach us about trying to basically monetize uh, music copyrights through NFTs. And we've looked at those, they raise a lot of securities issues and the, and the SEC is looking at all. Perhaps what would help for the listener is to really break down when we talk about web two, web three, kind of even start with web one, right? Web one was the introduction of the internet. Web two is the internet plus the ability to start to socialize, right? The, all those social media platforms, TikTok. Facebook, Instagram that exists. That's web two, the ability to really do full socialization. Web three, and, and web two, they talk about where it's everything centralized, it's controlled, it's by control by certain companies. Web three is really talking about decentralization, where you start to give the control and the access back to the consumer. So they still are interacting in the internet. They're still socializing. But now they have better control over the experience within the internet. And that's when the concept of when they start to talk about DAO and they talk about other kinds of technology, VR technology, that's what they're describing kind of within that Web3 environment. And that transition of the metaverse to Web3 is the real $64,000 question right now because if you step back from all of this, these metaverse platforms are just software platforms. And so the, the real sort of historical economic kind of questions facing us is who is going to have the kind of clout within the industry to, to push for cross-platform compatibility and, and a real transition to web 3.0. There's no standards organization that, that really that controls this stuff. Maybe some of the big technology players will get there, but it's going to be very interesting over the next four or five, six years. Yeah. The, the, the two of you have kind of led me right to where I was going as a way of kind of concluding the podcast. And that is what would your state of the metaverse be? If you were saying right now, what is the state of the metaverse or where you could look at where the metaverse will be in 2024? What is the current state of the metaverse? And I have my own view, which may be different from Flores and, and, and true. We're both right and both wrong. And, but, uh, it, to me, we're now still very much in the world of walled gardens. 
And so you have multiple platforms that, that don't cross each other. You have the user base, which are casual users who just come in and look around. You have the creator economy. So you have a very bottom up aspect of, of all that. But then as advertisers and brand managers have woken up to the economic potential here, you have a, a sort of top-down push because if you're the owner of one of these platforms, you, you, you really want to control the content. And if you're an advertiser, there's a symbiotic relationship between the users and the advertisers because what attracts the users so that the advertisers have someone to advertise to. So that's all percolating. And then I don't think anybody knows where it's going to land. And I was talking to an in-house lawyer at a toy company who's trying to explore NFTs across platforms six months ago. And they're working very hard at it, but he was sort of not at all optimistic that, that you're going to have the, the full transition to web 3.0 anytime soon. But Flora, contradict me, please. I agree with you, Terry. My perspective is we certainly are not there yet with web three. So I believe Facebook had redefined themselves back in 2021. And then the ad campaign that I provided legal counseling on occurred in 2022 with Decentraline. And then when I picked up the phone and called a couple of my folks that I know in the industry that might be diving still in the metaverse, I was like, so what's your metaverse activity like right now? And they're like, none. We're all talking about AI right now. And so what I think is the challenge right now, it's really about needing to simplify the technology, needing to make the technology accessible to a wider audience. So there are companies that are spending their time and building out in the metaverse. They have the money to do, they have the technology to do, but whether or not it's going to be accessible to a larger population, to many consumers, we're definitely not there yet. And what people are saying is, is that they feel that the metaverse, some will say it's here because we're able to have an augmented reality experience. So some are marketing where you go to New York City, you could go to a Van Gogh immersive experience. You walk in, you have these 3D displays and they say, that is the metaverse. I would say that's not the metaverse. That's not the future of the internet. That's still web two phase. And others would say that the metaverse is going into the games, playing games in Fortnite, because you'll feel like you're actually there playing, you're actually the actor within that game, playing the game. I say we're still not there. That is not Web3. Web3 is where you are in a virtual world, really feeling that it's real, what you're experiencing. You're climbing that Mount Everest. You can't really be there, but you actually feel like when you have the headset on that you're climbing Mount Everest. We're not there yet. This has been great. Thanks, Flora and Terry, for explaining the metaverse. And we certainly look forward to your participation in the next podcast hosted by the Task Force on Digital Technologies. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Be sure to check out This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, 
and about what makes them tick. And don't miss Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.